Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Christ Bible Church in the Twin Cities. I'm Pastor Levi Secord. It is the goal of Christ Bible Church to glorify God by bringing all of Christ into all of life. For that reason, I want you to know that we now offer a second podcast called The Worldview Minute. In it, I seek to demonstrate the universal importance of the Christian worldview by building the theological foundations of our faith and then applying them to all of life. The Worldview Minute aims to produce short, accessible episodes that equip the believer to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord and Lord over all of life. This podcast is available on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and Google. Just search for The Worldview Minute and you can subscribe there. Now let us turn our minds and our hearts to the preaching of God's Word. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you again this morning for your Word. We ask that as it is preached, that your Spirit would impart life. We recognize that as we gather together in the name of your Son, that we are the temple of God on earth. Lord, may your Spirit fill that temple this morning. May you be among us, may you strengthen us, and may you make us more into the image of your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. There's a lot of angst today uh, as Christians in our society wondering how it is that we are to live in this moment. And that's really understandable because it feels like every other day something is shaking the foundations. The challenges that we face appear new to us and they're often rather absurd. And the absurdities that are exposed as what they are, machinery of death, destruction, and chaos. But we cannot simply reason our way out of the problems we are having today. You can't reason with that which is unreasonable. And so we feel the tension, and it doesn't help that we often see other Christians and ministries compromising with the spirit of our age. We are to be a people who are marked by an overpowering life and joy in the work of Christ. And we stand in opposition to the culture of death and chaos. But let us think about the changing of our world at our present moment. This is not the first time the world has undergone um, dramatic shifts in thinking, and it won't be the last time. But one commentator has described what we are witnessing today as a transition from what we would call a positive culture to a neutral culture, and now into what is called a negative culture. What does all of that really mean? Well, a positive culture, the commentator means by, by that, that people used to come into the church in our society because there were positive cultural benefits of being a part of a church. So even if you weren't a Christian, you would at least pretend to be one because it would give you standing in the society. So people would fill the churches of the West and in America in specific because it would make them look like an upright, upstanding uh, citizen of that society. You You would become trustworthy if you were part of a church. That type of a culture has its own unique challenges, especially for the church. But the positive culture has now given way to, or it gave way to a neutral culture, where being a Christian wouldn't give you positive benefits, and it wouldn't really hurt you. The culture was largely neutral to Christians. If you want to be a Christian, go ahead. It's, as long as you keep that to yourself, there's really no major benefits to it culturally, and no major costs. But now finally, this neutral culture has given way to a negative one. Being a Christian now 
will really likely cost you socially and culturally. No one goes to join the church to become an upright stand or upstanding citizen in society. In fact, if you are a Christian, you'll be viewed as an outcast in many ways. More and more uh, individuals are feeling the tension in their, their careers and in their jobs that if they were to speak their Christian beliefs, they probably would be fired rather quickly. This is what is meant by a negative culture. Your Christian faith will cost you something today that prior generations simply did not have to worry about. And so when speaking of the American culture broadly, I think this breakdown is really helpful. We can see the shifts in our, in our last couple decades. We really are in a day today where many lobbyist leaders and others view Christians as the problem. And yet we can also say that America is diverse and any system like this is painting with a broad brush. You are more likely to find a negative culture, for example, on the coasts. You are more likely to find them in deep blue areas. In small towns in the Midwest and in the South, you will still find neutral cultures and even positive ones. But this framework, I think, is still helpful. But to be in a negative culture for Christians is not new. And that is something we have to come to terms with. This type of, or not oppression, this type of pushback is not something foreign to the church. The church has faced it in many different times and in many different places. Our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, almost exclusively today, live in negative cultures where it will cost them uh, to live out their faith. Nonetheless, we have to deal with living in the society God has planted for us. American Christianity is wrestling with how do we best handle the shift to go from a positive to a neutral to a negative culture. Make no mistake, any form of persecution, whether it's mild or severe, is evil. But make no mistake, what the world intends for evil, God will use for good. God has not lost control. None of this is a surprise to him. And yet, it is strange, having grown up in some of this transition, that I often find myself not feeling at home in my own state, in my own country. It is strange that I feel like I can't say what I believe often. And you're like, Levi, you say it anyway. So I'm like, yeah, I do. But I feel that tension of living in a world that's gone mad while I also refuse to go along with the madness. How do we live in such a time? We are, to many people, rejected and despised. And Jesus told us that it would be the case, that you and I should expect such things. And we need to fix our heads on that truth to know that Christ has not only asked us to put up with such persecution, but he went through it himself. He went through it first. The world has rejected Christ, who we read in this passage, as the cornerstone. And it is upon him that you and I are being built into the temple of the living God. So what are we to do in such times? 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-8 through are helpful. The passage opens with these words, as you come to him, as you and I come to him is a reference that we are to go to Christ, not just at initial conversion. This is not a statement that you came to Christ when you were seven, or you came to Christ when you were 15 or 45 or whenever you were converted. That is not what Peter is speaking about here. 
This is a continuing of the argument he's been laying out throughout chapter 1. You were born again at the end of chapter 1 by the imperishable word of God. You are to grow into that salvation through taking in the pure milk of the word of God. The beginning of chapter 2. And now Peter continues, as you are continually coming to this Jesus, then he's going to lay out the rest of his argument. This is speaking of an ongoing dependence that you and I are to have upon Christ. To be a Christian is not coming to Christ once, it is coming to Christ again and again and again, day by day. That Christ alone is our head, Christ alone is our hope, He is our Savior, He is our Lord, He is our teacher, He is our physician, He is our everything. And so Peter says, as you come to Christ, as you are continually coming to Him, this is how you should live. To put it another way, the mark of being a Christian is a daily dependence upon Jesus. If you want to know if you're a Christian, ask yourself that question. Am I looking to Him regularly? Am I following after Him regularly? Am I trusting of Him regularly? Am I worshiping Him regularly? Am I obeying Him regularly? Note, I did not say perfectly, but regularly. This is the assumption. Not if you come to Him, but as you continue to come to Him throughout your life. But who is this Jesus we are coming to? So four, first half of verse 4, as you come to Him. Well, who is He? Now, I think this is where it starts to get interesting. What part of the character and the nature of Christ does Peter want to highlight here? As you come to this Jesus, this is the one who has all authority in the universe. This is the one who crushed the head of the serpent. This is the one who shack, or ripped off the shackles of sin and death on your behalf. Is that what Peter is going to focus on here? The glory of Christ, the power of Christ. No. You are coming to a living stone rejected by men. The stone that the builders rejected in verse 7. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of of offense. You are to go, you and I are to go to the one who is rejected and despised. That's one of those shifts. The rejected one is the one we are to turn to. And if he is rejected and despised, if he is a rock of offense, how can you and I expect to be anything else? You and I are to take comfort because Though we too are offensive to the world, though we too live in a negative culture and are rejected, so was our Savior. That's what this passage is all about. You and I are called to follow in the footsteps of our Lord, and hear me on that, you are to view that not as an inconvenience, but as an honor. You are to view that as an honor, that you have been found worthy of following our Lord and Savior in being rejected and despised. We are rejects and fools according to the world. We are worthy of all types of scorn according to the coasts. And that is a good thing. That is not a problem. I know what some of you are thinking. Levi, this is not your best sales pitch to become a Christian. It's not that appealing. And yet there it is in the Bible. No one willingly signs up to be a rejected outcast. 
or to follow a rejected Savior, unless that Savior has done something in you already. To go to the rejected one is to invite rejection into your own life. Jesus warned us of this in John chapter 15. Consider these words. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. We are not above our master. Sometimes I think we think we are. Like we shouldn't be persecuted. The world shouldn't hate us. Are we above our master? Jesus then, continuing this thought in John 16, says, Take heart though, for I have overcome this world. Let us unpack that a little bit. Jesus was rejected by men. It was those who stuck stuck in the systems of this world who rejected him. It is those stuck in the systems of this world who continue to reject him. And this should go deep into your philosophy of life and ministry. How? Let me put it plainly. There is no such thing as a cool or hip Christian. Pastors can put on as many pairs of skinny jeans as they want. They can get the craziest haircuts that they want. There is no such thing as a cool and a hip Christian if we are judging those things by the standard of a world that hates our Savior. It doesn't exist. We cannot seek to run the church according to the desires of those who have rejected our Master. When we do, we have revealed that we have a different Master. Of course, we know there are things that are cultural that are of little importance and that the church can and should adapt to live as a Jew among the Jews or as a Gentile among the Gentiles. But the driving force of a church can never be the desires of wolves or goats. The driving ethic of a church is to follow its master. And if that means rejection, then so be it. And so we must be comfortable and even encouraged that we are rejected by those who reject our Savior. It means that you're following him. Now, of course, we can do things offensive that is not following after Jesus and be rejected by the world. We want to make sure we are rejected for the right reasons, but also realizing that the world will never represent us fairly. But we have to get this in our head. Successful ministry and a successful Christian life means you will be at odds with this world. And in this age, that will be increasingly evident. If the world hates you, it is not a sign of failure. It very well may be a sign of faithfulness. And we need to fix that deep in our hearts. Jesus, though, though being rejected, was chosen and labeled as precious by God as this passage unfolds. We had this tension. The world has rejected him. He is the rejected stone, and yet God has chosen him, and he is precious. And that just leads us to that baseline question. Whose opinion do you care about more? God or men? And how you answer that question will impact everything. God has labeled Christ as precious. God has chosen him as the instrument of our salvation. And God's opinion matters more. And just as Christ is a precious stone to God, so are those who are found in him. 
We follow Christ in being rejected by men. And we follow Christ by being chosen by God and declared precious in His sight. So Christ here is described as a living stone. You'll note that famous men throughout history have been cast in stone or bronze. You can walk around our capitals or other areas where there are lots of people who live and you will find statues, stone representations of individuals. Literally monuments that we have built to dead people to remember their great deeds. But Peter wants you to know that Christ is no such dead great man. He is not a dead piece of stone. He is not a dead martyr. He is alive. A living stone. He is the living Lord over everything. He is the risen one who shattered the power of death in the grave. Christ is the resurrection and the life. He holds power over life and death. And as the living stone, as the one who holds the keys to life and death, he is a life-giving stone. That's really the main point of that label. What is a living stone? It's a stone that imparts life to others. Because this rejected stone is now the cornerstone, the implication here is that the leaders examined Christ. The Jewish leaders examined his claims and they rejected him. They said, this is not the one that is the Messiah. This is not the one that we are going to build our hope and our future upon. And Peter comes in here and says, actually, this is the one you are to build your life upon. He was the chosen cornerstone, prophesied to be rejected. And much like today, people think Jesus isn't the answer. They think he can't help here. You think he can't be the foundation of your life, or you need something more. But none of that thinking really works. God has made Christ the cornerstone, the first stone, the stone that every other stone is aligned to. So what is God doing in all of this? Why be rejected? Why then declare that the rejected one isn't the cornerstone? What is God doing? Look at verses 5 and 6 again. Peter writes, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, For behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, you and I are being connected to that stone, to Christ. The church, and by that I mean all believers at all times, whether Jew or Gentile, is a spiritual house that is the temple of God upon this earth. Paul makes that point crystal clear in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. This is a reoccurring theme throughout the New Testament. The church is the temple of God on earth in this period of time. And this is all built upon the idea that Jesus himself is the true temple of God. In the Gospel of John, as we return there, Jesus shows up and we read in the first chapters of John that Christ, the Word, took upon himself flesh and he dwelt among us. If you understand what that word dwelt means, it's the same word used for tabernacle or the first temple. Christ tabernacles with us. Then you move into John chapter 2 and Jesus tells us that he is the temple and that if you tear him down, in three days he will raise that temple back up. And the Jews are thinking about the physical bricks of the temple and they say, you can't do that. But Jesus was saying, I'm the temple. I'm the place where God dwells with man. 
I am the place where heaven and earth meet. And so we are those who come to Christ by grace through faith, united to Him, and we become living stones, a part of a real, growing, and rising temple of God in this age. We are where God dwells with man in this age. We are where God's Spirit descends. We are where heaven and earth meet. We are a nation of priests who dwell in the very presence of God and who act as mediators, in a sense, to a dying world. Saying, through this church, the church that Christ has established, you can come to God. Mankind was rejected by God in the garden. Mankind was kicked out of the garden and out of the presence of God. But through Christ, God has established a way back again. And us who, like Christ, have been rejected by men, are now accepted by God. Again, 1 Peter is written to a church that is suffering, one that is experiencing real persecution. They are rejected again and again. They are rejects and losers by the standards of this world. And yet, those very same people are accepted by God and allowed into His presence. And that is the plot twist of the Gospel. As Paul says elsewhere, not many of you were wise, not many of you were rich, not many of you were famous, not many of you would have been ones picked first for the team. But that's just the way God does it. Now note, it says not many of you, so some of them were. Such status doesn't get you excluded either. But God likes to turn the thinking of this world on his head again and again. And so we can say in a very real way that you and I live in a time of fulfillment. Christ, who is the true temple, is building a temple here on earth where Christ is the cornerstone and every one of his people is joined together in alignment with that cornerstone into a living temple. And Christ is our great high priest. And in being united to him, we are a nation of priests ministering to this dying world. And so this temple, brick by brick or person by person, is invading a world that has rejected its Savior. It is growing and it is marked by life. And we look forward to the full realization of that temple when the risen Lord descends and heaven returns to earth and we dwell with God and all things are made new. Until that time, God continues to build his temple on earth with rejected and despised individuals who follow in the footsteps of their Savior. Thus the choice is put to us. Be rejected by the world or be rejected by God. Look at verses 7 and 8. Two paths of life. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. There's a lot going on in those two verses, but we get this idea. You can trade rejection in the world for honor from God. What is this honor Peter speaks of? It's reference to eternal life. To be found in the living stone that is Jesus Christ, salvation is given to you through him. And this type of thinking is all over the New Testament. But let me make it clear. 
you cannot be saved except by this stone. You cannot be saved except by explicit faith in Jesus. This whole passage, right? Jesus was rejected by the leaders of his time. God has actually chosen him. He's made him the cornerstone. That is the stone every stone must be connected to and aligned with. And only those stones who are aligned with him are built into this temple. You cannot be saved except through personal faith in Jesus Christ. There is no third way. There is no other way to come to God. Salvation comes through one name alone, Jesus Christ. But what happens to the ones who reject him? To them, Christ is not a living stone, but he's a stone of offense, of stumbling and falling, a rock that they find offensive. And if there is one thing we excel at today, it is being offended. We are offended by every tweet, every comment, every everything. But at the bedrock of all offense is to be offended by Christ. And they stumble and they fall. Peter here is citing Isaiah chapter 8. They fall right into the judgment of God. Listen to Isaiah 8. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble upon it. They shall fall and be broken, and they shall be snared and taken. So Peter says this was foretold. This was their destiny. Centuries beforehand, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 8 says, hey guys, this is what's going to happen. God's going to put forward a stone, and everybody is going to reject this stone, and he is going to become offensive to them, and they are going to fall into a snare. Peter comes century later and says, hey guys, guess what happened? Exactly what God said was going to happen in Isaiah chapter 8. These things don't happen without God. Centuries before, people don't make predictions that come true unless God is involved. But we have to note that Peter highlights this is their destiny, that they will be caught in a snare and taken. And even in saying this is their destiny, it does not remove personal responsibility. It is they who take offense. It is they who reject Christ. It is because of their decisions that they are rejected by God. And thus the two paths of life are set before us. The dividing line, the fork in the road, is the person of Jesus. You either accept him and are accepted by God, or you reject him and are rejected by God. Again, there is no third path. So the question is not if we will be rejected, but the question is who will be rejecting us? You will either be rejected by the world or by God. Their rejection of you, therefore, is a blessing showing that you are in allegiance to Christ. And so we return to our first question. How do you live in a negative culture? Well, the first century did it. The first century church did it. They lived in a more negative culture than we do. How do you do it? You align yourself with the cornerstone. How do we deal with it? We have to understand who we are, who Christ is, and what God is doing. Christ has been rejected, but God has exalted him. And so Peter encourages us, by extension, to know that this is how God works. Our forefathers in the faith have paved a way for us, a way of faithfulness, of bearing the scorn of men, but being blessed by God. Living in a negative culture is not fun, but it is not a surprise. 
And even this present madness that we experience will be used by God for good. And as hard as it is to imagine, it will be used to usher in the very kingdom of Christ. And so you and I are to be the temple of God in the midst of a world gone mad. We are living stones connected to the one true living stone. And while some will reject and stumble and fall over that stone, we have this promise. In verse 6, as I studied this passage, these words here in verse 6 became the most soul-stirring to me. Listen very carefully. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. I've been put to public shame by this world many times in my life. There are people out there who hate me. There are people out there who have slandered me again and again. There are people out there who have called me all kinds of nasty things, but I will not be put to shame. Because Christ has won. I bear these reproaches, not always perfectly, but I am learning slowly but surely to rejoice in them. For thus they have treated my Savior. And I am not above my Master. Everyone who hopes in Christ, hear this, everyone who hopes in Christ, even in a negative culture, will not be put to shame. This is why Peter writes these words. This is a church suffering. And he wants them to know quite clearly, Christ suffered before you, and he will not let you be put to shame. You will be built into that temple for the Lord of the universe. And how sweet of a promise is that to those being rejected and scorned and despised by this world. You will receive honor, and through the blood of Christ, you will receive vindication. The lashes we receive for this honor are worth it, and a sign of our allegiance to Christ. This is why Jesus said, We are to rejoice when others revile us and do all kinds of evil to us for his namesake. Now notice that qualifier. Just being a jerk, and then someone being a jerk back to you doesn't count. When you are reviled for his namesake, you are to rejoice. It is a good sign and not a sign of failure. So Christ is our cornerstone, the living stone rejected by men, but accepted by God. And as that living stone, he is turning us into the temple of God, the temple of the Most High God in this age. Christ, therefore, is our only hope in life and death. And so we follow him, we praise him, we look forward to his return, and we bear any rejection that comes our way. And so we press, press on, as men and women of Christ, because though the world rejects us, in him we are accepted by God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this promise this morning that Christ the rejected one is our hope. Lord, we know that this world often seems out of control to us, but that it is not. That Christ reigns that you are working out your perfect plan. Lord, I ask for the people seated in this room that you would keep them, that they would see the rejection of their Savior and bear any scorn with a smile, that they would see that it is worth the cost. 
Lord, may you strengthen us and may you fix our eyes upon the living cornerstone who is Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.